Around here, we try to have a plan regarding what episodes we're doing and when. Most of the time, that plan works out pretty well. But every once in a while, something goes awry, and we sort of have to improvise. That's what happened a few weeks ago when we found we had miscounted the number of weeks we had to cover in August thanks to a quirk of the calendar and our release schedule. Which is why you ended up with episodes about white horses and chimera. Then there was the whole wildfire situation from the last episode, and things have been kind of a mess schedule-wise for most of August and September. And then, sometimes, there are problems of our own making that we just don't see any easy way to get past. Take, for example, the episode you're hearing now. We originally started to write it as a follow-on to Chimera, but something about it just didn't work right, and we set it aside to do a lost episode instead. And now, we find ourselves stuck between a rock and a hard place. All our get-out-of-jail-free episodes have been done, but this one still doesn't quite work, and we're coming up against our usual weekly production deadline. We're out of ideas about how to move forward. So we thought maybe you could help us. Maybe if we just explain the problem to you, you'll see what we mean and know what to do. See, Typhon and Echidna, Chimera's parents, were prolific, if monstrous, parents. At least that's the first impression. They had a dozen terrible offspring, according to some sources, and that's sort of where our problem starts. According to some sources. Apparently, they were also very popular parents. So popular that pretty much every well-known terror of Greek mythology was said to be their offspring. Basically, anytime someone wanted to loosely retell a story about a monster in ancient Greece, but was deeply adverse to actually doing any research, they simply assigned Typhon and Echidna as the parents of whatever horrible thing they were talking about. Oh, that terrible eagle that eats Sisyphus's liver every day as part of his punishment? One of Echidna's kids, the little rascals. A wild pig that ravages the countryside so much they had to send Theseus out to kill it? Must be one of Typhon's brood. <laughs> what are they like, am I right? This tendency, of course, has its downside. The further you go down the list of offspring, the harder it is to believe that one couple, even a couple as prone to infidelity and weird genetics as they were, could be responsible for such a wide variety of creatures. Think about it. You've got multi-headed dogs, a hydra, chimera, the sphinx, a random lion, the eagle, a snake, a dragon, the seriously, how does that even work, gorgon, the pig, and finally, at the end of it all, Scylla. Scylla is a weird outlier because of two things. First, Scylla already has a mother, at least two, in fact, neither of whom is Echidna. Famous Greeks Homer and Ovid declared her mother as Critaeus, and the writer Apollodorus goes one step further and says sea god Triton is probably her father. You'd certainly remember someone that important. To be fair, not much is known about Critaeus, she's really more of a passing mention, but even if she was given undeserved credit, Apollodorus is ready to claim that Critaeus is just another name for the second possibility. Hecate, goddess of magic at night and necromancy and a whole bunch of other things you'd do well not to forget. It's really hard to imagine how either of those two could be forgotten or confused with Typhon, evil serpent monster bent on overthrowing Zeus, and Echidna, mother of horrors. And even if you could forget Triton and Hecate, you run into the second problem with Typhon-Echidna parentage. 
Every account of Scylla seems to agree on at least one fact. She wasn't born a giant abomination of a monster. Far from it. Scylla was born as a beautiful nymph, a naiad, a protecting spirit of fresh water, and only became Scylla the dangerous monster thanks to a curse placed on her by another Greek god who becomes jealous of her and the attention she receives. And you can begin to see the problem we're having writing this episode. If we can't establish basic facts about Scylla, how do we even have an episode about her? And if she's running around being connected to nearly everything in Greek mythology depending on who she's related to, how do we avoid having to tell you the entirety of Greek mythology in just one episode, only to mention the scant bits of fact we do have? Chances are you end up with an episode that is lost, confused, and wanders around aimlessly, forever getting into trouble. Sound familiar? This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. First, we should start with Homer. Homer is, as you are expected to know by anyone with a so-called classical education, a poet of ancient Greece who existed, probably, in the late 8th to 7th centuries BCE. While he may have written many poetic works, only two survive to this day, the Iliad and the Odyssey. The Iliad tells the last part of the story of the Trojan War. Except it doesn't. What it really talks about is an argument between King Agamemnon and the hero Achilles that happens during the last year of a war that gave us Trojan horses and explained why it's really important to dip all of your child in the magic waters, whether your fingers get wet or not. Except neither of those things happened in the Iliad. Though Achilles' eventual death is alluded to several times as various gods helped the Trojans and the Greeks wage war on each other. The Iliad did so well that Homer came up with a sequel and simultaneously set a precedent for sequel writing that still holds today. The Odyssey takes a popular side character, Odysseus, from the Iliad and puts him through adventures almost entirely unrelated to events of the previous work. See, Odysseus had been told through prophecy that if he went to war it would take forever for him to get back home from it. So he feigned madness, was tricked into revealing he was sane, and got shipped off to the war anyway. The ten-year-long Trojan War. While there, he reluctantly does a bunch of heroic stuff, sides with the wrong guy, but does one or two things that endear him to the audience anyway, and so gets prime billing in the sequel. He isn't the main focus of the Iliad. But as soon as Homer made him the focus of Odyssey, you just knew things were going to go badly for Odysseus. It really is going to take him forever to get home, and chances are, given Homer's usual plot device of affronted gods, you just know most of it isn't going to be his fault. During the journey in Odyssey, we get a passing mention of the Trojan horse, but mostly a bunch of really weird adventures befall Odysseus as various Greek gods either help or hinder him and really make sure he spends as much time as possible at sea. All while his wife Penelope is back home in Ithaca trying to fend off the advances of a hundred or so suitors who all believe that Odysseus is dead and won't be coming home anytime soon. Odysseus' son, Telemachus, goes out looking for him, but the bulk of the poem-come-book is about all the trouble Odysseus gets into. If only he'd kept his mouth shut after escaping the Cyclops Polyphemus. Instead, 
he mouths off and old One-Eye begs his father Poseidon to put a decade-long curse on Odysseus, which Poseidon does. From then on, it's just a mess of dead men, shipwrecks, and giant monsters until eventually, spoilers, he gets home, reunites with his wife, and kills all the suitors while winning an archery contest. Just so you have the full recap and can appreciate all the trouble Odysseus went to in getting home, he starts out at the very end of the ten-year-long Trojan War and sails for home, probably thinking that ten years was certainly a long time to be gone from home, but thank goodness that prophecy was now fulfilled and he could go straight back to Ithaca and resume kinging again. Little did he know that he wasn't even going to get a reduced sentence for time served. Off he and his fleet, yes fleet, sail from Troy, and the very first thing they do is a little artisanal raiding. They find an island and stop in at Sikonis to take what they can from the locals and get out before they organize enough to drive Odysseus off on their own. Almost as soon as they set off again, all twelve ships are caught up in a storm and blown off course. And it's all downhill from there. The whole fleet, yes fleet, is blown to the land of the Lotus Eaters. When they come ashore looking for fresh water and food, they encounter the people of the land who seem supremely uninterested in anything the crew has to say. But here, have some of this fruit from this tree. No, no, it's perfectly fine, we promise. You're going to love it. We've even cleared a spot for you right here to lay down on and eat more. And eat they did. And suddenly all the crew that ate of the strange plant lost all interest in returning home or seeing friends and family, preferring instead to simply lay around yawning and eating the fruit of the lotus tree. Which, by the way, doesn't exist. No one is quite sure what plant Odysseus is referring to. After quite a lot of effort, Odysseus manages to drag his men back to their ships and set sail again, only to turn right around and run into that Cyclops, which, after eating several of his crew and detaining the rest for later meals, Odysseus eventually escapes by first blinding the Cyclops and then tying himself and his crew to the sheep the Cyclops lets out every day to graze. There's a fun bit where Odysseus claims his name is Nobody, but we'll let you read about that yourselves. Then the whole fleet arrives at the island home of Aeolus, master of the winds, where, surprising everyone, the men behave well, and Odysseus is given a bag of winds to ensure their safe and speedy journey home. So that's nice, and will clearly work out well. Wrong. Oh sure, the bag of winds gets the entire fleet, yes fleet, within sight of Ithaca. Amazing, cool, end of journey, they all say, let's divide up the treasure. Hey, wait a minute, why is Odysseus preventing us from dividing up all the gold that must be in that sack he keeps carrying around as if it were something extremely precious and or dangerous? Let's grab it when he isn't looking and share it out among ourselves. And again, most of what happens to Odysseus isn't really his fault. Not even the part where he forgot to be very specific with his men and explain that this bag, the bag he was keeping very careful control of, wasn't full of gold at all, but wind. So naturally, he could hardly be blamed for his men stealing the sack and letting all the wind out when they opened it up. Which blew the entire fleet, yes fleet, all the way back to Aeolus. Just as if they'd never really gone anywhere at all. And Aeolus, not being a complete fool, denied their request to refill the bag of wind once more for them and washed his hands of the whole affair, saying that Odysseus was clearly cursed by the gods themselves and he wanted no part of it at all. Good luck getting home, don't bother writing. So, back to actual sailing they went until they came to the next island, 
and things looked pretty okay. There was a sheltered bay to moor in out of the rough seas and storm, and so most of the fleet sailed into the middle of it and tied up to each other in order to stay together. Now, we're not saying Odysseus knew what was about to happen, or that he had ever been to the island of the Lestragonians before. But we find it terribly, terribly suspicious, given what happens next, that he chose not to tie his ship up with the others, and didn't even bother to enter the harbor. No, for him, it seemed far better to moor outside the harbor, behind some rocks. We're guessing he was still upset about the whole bag of winds thing. It didn't take long for his men to discover the big problem with the Lestragonians, which was that they were a bunch of giant cannibals, more than willing to make a meal of anyone who came along for a nice visit. Men were skewered and eaten practically before they could even say, my, what big teeth you have. In the ensuing panic and chaos, the men ran back to their boats, chased by literally thousands of the giants, all eager for a quick nibble. When the men reached the safety of their ships, Homer writes them all out of the story with the usual aplomb of an aggravated GM. Literally, rocks fall, everyone dies. The cannibal giants sink all 11 ships parked in the harbor by throwing boulders at them, and all the men are eaten or drowned. Well, all the men except for those on Odysseus's ship, who quietly row away in horror into the night. We're certain it's just a coincidence he didn't park up with the others. So much for the fleet. Little better is Odysseus's next stop, the island of Aea, home to no less than the witch goddess Circe, who happily feeds the remaining men wine and cheese as a refresher, just before changing half of them into pigs. Fortunately, some of the gods actually are on Odysseus's side, though not when Poseidon is looking and Hermes comes along to give Odysseus a herb called Moly that makes him proof against Circe's magic. Again, no one is sure exactly what plant Homer was referring to, but as a result, Circe takes a shine to Odysseus and seduces him. Fortunately, he convinces her to change his crew back into more useful man shapes. Anyway, as part of his supposed best efforts to get home in something less than a decade's worth of time, Odysseus is eventually convinced by his crew to leave the island home of the witch after having spent the better part of a year hanging out and making kissy faces with her. So they set sail, and the now kindly disposed Circe gives Odysseus some advice about how he should proceed, which he sets out to follow. His next stop, and believe me, we are wrapping this up and getting to the relevant bit very soon, is a harbor somewhere far to the west along the edge of the world. There, he descends to the gates of Hades and makes his sacrifice, meets the ghost of a prophet, and receives two of the worst pieces of news a man can get while stuck far from home with little hope of getting back. The spirit of his mother appears, and not only is she all, surprise, I died while waiting for you to come back home, but also, surprise, there are 108 guys who all figure you're dead and are putting the moves on your wife. Also, would it have killed you to write once in a while? Did you pack enough sweaters? You know how moms are. After he meets a few more ghosts from his past and hears something about not eating the bowls of Helios, which he apparently forgot again to share with his crew, they set sail. He and his men make it past an island full of sirens, relatively unscathed thanks to Circe's advice, but swiftly come to a narrow piece of ocean which they need to traverse because even in the BCEs, Homer knew 
plot. And finally, we've arrived where we wanted to be at the start of this episode. The trick of it is, in order to cross this little bit of ocean, Odysseus has to make a choice. Two monsters lived on either side of the narrow strait he had to pass through. On the one hand was Scylla, a monster with twelve feet and six heads with three rows of sharp teeth each. The heads were each mounted on a long snake neck, and even more dog-like heads circled her waist. She definitely meets some of the genetic requirements for being the offspring of Typhon and Echidna. She would lash out from her cave near the water and grab hold of as many passing creatures as she could and devour them whole. You definitely wanted to keep away from her if you happened to be sailing by. Definitely. Except, on the other side of the strait, just a bow shot away, was Charybdis. Yet another dangerous monster of Greek mythology. Charybdis, described in some accounts as a giant void-like creature with gelatinous flopping arms and legs, was cursed by Zeus for helping Poseidon spread the realm of the sea by inundating land with seawater. So naturally, Charybdis is cursed to constantly crave the waters of the sea. Three times a day she would open her maw and the ocean would flow into her, exposing rocks, reefs, and submerged islands in an effort to quench her thirst. And three times a day she would close her mouth again and the waters would flow out, covering everything over once more. Charybdis would swallow ships and all aboard them whole, drowning them all in her intake. You definitely wanted to keep away from her if you happened to be sailing by. Definitely. Now really, what was probably going on was far simpler than that. Probably the place everyone was talking about was really the Strait of Messina, located just off the western tip of Calabria in southern Italy and the eastern tip of Sicily. It's only about 3 kilometers wide, but is over 250 meters deep. As such, it is subject to strong tidal currents and a whirlpool exists in its northern portion which could be seen as a swallower of ships, especially the smaller ships of the day. A reputation enhanced, no doubt, by the actions of the tide moving water into and out of the strait, three times a day. That would certainly go a long way to explaining Charybdis. Or rather, Charybdis would go a long way to explaining the whirlpool to the ancient Greeks. Similarly, across the strait, Scylla was probably the ancient Greek mythological explanation for a reef or group of underwater rocks, which, if a ship sailed too close to them, would tear the ship up and sink it. The trick, of course, was to navigate the strait without falling afoul of the rocks or the whirlpool. Put too much space between you and the rocks and you run into the whirlpool, avoid the whirlpool and you risk the rocks. Anyway, as part of the guidance Odysseus received from Circe, he was told it was far better to lose six men than it was to risk the entire ship, and so he snuggled up to Scylla to avoid Charybdis. And sure enough, Scylla sent out her six shark-toothed heads and snatched six sailors right off the decks and ate them whole. A bit later, Odysseus has another run-in with Scylla and Charybdis in which he very nearly fails to successfully navigate the whirlpool but since all his crew is long dead by then because they ate some sort of cow being raised by Helios, we're sure someone would have mentioned it if it was important that they not do that, it hardly matters. It's just another of Homer's exercises in keeping the end as far away from the beginning as possible. 
From this whole episode in Odysseus' adventures comes the phrase between Scylla and Charybdis, meaning to make a choice between two bad outcomes by choosing the lesser of the two evils. It's similar to the phrases caught between a rock and a hard place, on the horns of a dilemma, between the devil and the deep blue sea, and other such terms. Except that everyone seems to ignore two fundamental facts about the whole Odysseus story when trotting the phrase and its relatives out for an airing. Fact. Odysseus could have taken the longer, but safer route home by going around Sicily. Yes, it might have added a few days to his travel time, but considering that he subsequently shipwrecked, marooned, lost at sea, loses all his men because they can't keep their hands off some cows on the next island over, and it takes him a further seven years and a month to finally get home, he probably could have spared the extra few days to avoid all the danger. The second fact that gets ignored is that Odysseus simply could have been a better king and captain. He doesn't seem very good at leading his men. Sure, he keeps them in the dark about several crucial bits of information, don't open the bag of winds, don't eat the cows, but much of Odysseus's problems getting home are caused by his own men, who are foolhardy and frequently ignore their common sense and Odysseus's orders, even after they see what sorts of disasters they cause by doing so. And that's really all we know about Scylla and Charybdis. A brief mention of them during the Odyssey, plus one or two even smaller mentions in subsequent retellings of the tale down the centuries. It's information, but mostly in the form of a sidebar to the much more interesting story of Odysseus himself. The monsters are interesting, yes, but not in and of themselves. They're just another roadblock on the journey home, really. It's the larger story that makes it all worthwhile. Except it turns out that the story itself is about a guy who tries to make his way home with a pack of idiots. And what you mostly learn from it is, don't do that. And maybe, try a different way when you get stuck. So, we guess that's it really. Don't go home with a bunch of idiots, and always look for a third option. And how do you even start to make an episode about that? What else could you have learned? Maybe you can help. Thanks for listening to this episode of GM Word of the Week. Things have calmed down a lot for us here, and we hope they've calmed down a lot for you as well. We've even got some blue skies back. How nice. You might have noticed we've got some nifty new album art for the show. After consulting with our patrons and a few other select friends and family, we've arrived at what we think is a very nice update to what was our five-year-old art. We hope you enjoy it. You'll be seeing it in a lot of places. We've also rearranged our feeds a bit. As a result, you might suddenly be inundated with a whole bunch of old episodes trying to re-download themselves onto your listening devices. We apologize for this and hope it isn't too inconvenient, but it was something that had to be done to help preserve the future distribution of the show. Speaking of future distribution, we're now available on Amazon Music, under the podcast section. You have to search for us, though, if you want it there, and... Since there's no way for us to update the feed info Amazon uses, we're still shackled to the old artwork. So if you really, really miss it, maybe go there. Or don't, it's Amazon after all. If you'd like to join our Patreon or help support the show in other ways with things like shirts and such, 
you can do so by heading to gmwordoftheweek.com and clicking the yellow banner at the top of any page. Probably once things get back to normal, we'll be making the new art available as merchandise as well, so keep an eye on that if you're interested. And many thanks to all our patrons who helped with feedback on the art. You folks are pretty okay. This episode was researched, written, and produced by Brian Casey, who isn't above using any old trick he can find to keep the beginning as far as possible from the end. Music is provided by Blue Dot Sessions. Anxiety and ennui are the scylla and charybdis on which the bark of human happiness is most often wrecked. <laughs>